0: When I first entered upon the work of the ministry among you, I was exceedingly ignorant of the vast importance of church discipline. I thought that my great and almost only work was to pray and preach. I saw your souls to be so precious in the time so short that I devoted all my time and care and strength to labor in word and doctrine. When cases of discipline were brought before me and the elders, I regarded them with something like abhorrence. It was a duty I shrank from, and I may truly say it nearly drove me from the work of the ministry among you altogether. But it pleased God, who teaches his servants in another way than man teaches, to bless some of the cases of discipline to the manifest and undeniable conversion of the souls of those under our care. And from that hour, a new light broke in upon my mind, and I saw that if preaching be an ordinance of Christ, so is church discipline. I now feel deeply persuaded that both are of God. That two keys are committed to us by Christ. The one key of doctrine, by means of which we unlock the treasures of the Bible. The other key of discipline, by which we open or shut the way to the sealing ordinances of the faith. Both are Christ's gift, and neither is to be resigned without sin. These are the words of Robert Murray Mishane. Who was a 19th century Scottish pastor and missionary? Words that he spoke in a sermon one time to his church at Dundee. I dare say that they are words that reflect the heart and the attitude of many pastors, many preachers of the gospel who shepherd churches as they have come to understand more and more what the Word of God says about this whole matter of church discipline. You cannot be committed to the Word of God, submissive to its authority, without being confronted by this very important subject. In a day when we have witnessed the widespread breakdown of discipline in our political system, in our educational institutions, as well as in our homes, the mere suggestion that there ought to be discipline in the church probably sounds foreign to the ears of many. Yet, if you read the Bible honestly and comprehensively, you cannot escape the conclusion that discipline in a church is not merely a suggestion, it is commanded. Repeatedly. Christ calls His church to deal with sin and to do so with discipline and with grace. That is, Jesus expects His people bearing His name to live together in a church in an orderly, God-honoring way. And He's given to us very clear instructions on how to do that. For example, in Matthew chapter 18, perhaps the best-known classic passage from our Lord's own lips about this subject, He says this in verse 15, If your brother be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven now jesus says these words to his disciples a disciple is someone who is trusting jesus christ as lord and is counting on christ to make him right with god a disciple is committed to following jesus christ with a life of obedience to his commandments A church is a body of such disciples. The body of Christ. It's a family of Christ followers. People who have joined together saying, Jesus is our Lord and we are committed together to live under His authority according to His Word. What this means is that a true church is ruled by Jesus Christ. Christ is in the language of the Apostle Paul, the head of the church. And as our head, our ruler, he has given us commandments, instructions to govern how we live before him, both in the world and in the church. And part of the beauty of the church is that we help one another to pursue this way of life by watching out for each other, assisting each other, encouraging each other, fellowshipping together, correcting one another when necessary. No one Christian who takes God's word seriously would ever think that he has what it takes to live the Christian life without the help of others. God has designed the life of discipleship so that it takes a church to raise a healthy Christian. And when a church takes its responsibilities seriously, every member will be encouraged to be faithful in obeying Jesus Christ and in helping others to do so as well. In this church, we understand that responsibility, we own that responsibility, and we are committed to it, even expressed our commitment in the words of a covenant that everyone who joins this church agrees with. In that covenant, we promise to help each other by Quote, watching over one another and receiving admonishment as occasion may require, participating in and accepting the discipline of the church concerning doctrine and conduct. By promising to live this way, we are simply following the instructions of God's word to churches. And we will see this in the text that is before us this morning from 2 Corinthians. We're working our way through this book, this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And this morning we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5-11. through 11. That's the text for our study. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you, it's found on page 964 and 965. And I want you to open up a copy of God's Word and follow along as I read it aloud and then as we walk our way through it to understand what Jesus is saying to His church on this occasion so hear the word of the Lord from 2nd Corinthians chapter 2 beginning in verse 5 now if anyone has caused pain he has caused it not to me but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you for such a one this punishment by the majority is enough so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Christ calls his church to deal with sin. And he calls us to deal with sin, with discipline, and with grace. In these verses, the Apostle Paul is dealing with an issue that was well known to the church at Corinth. He had planted this church on his second missionary journey. If you'd like to read about it, you can do so in Acts chapter 18. He spent 18 months in that church after he had planted it. Shortly after he left that church and traveled to Ephesus, the church contacted him about problems and various questions that they had about things that were going on in the church. And so he wrote them a letter. That letter is what we have in our New Testaments as 1 Corinthians. After that, Paul learned that there were more serious issues in the church at Corinth. So serious that he felt like it required an emergency visit to them. And so he leaves Ephesus for a short period, goes back to Corinth, addresses very serious problems in the church. That visit was what chapter 2, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians refers to as a painful visit. Nothing more is recorded about it. We don't read about it in the book of Acts, but Paul indicates it took place here in this letter. It was painful because when Paul showed up in Corinth on this occasion, he had to deal with blatant sin in the church and he had to deal with it head on. It was difficult. Not long after that visit, he writes another letter to the church at Corinth. We don't have that letter in our Bibles. But again, he refers to it as a severe letter in verse 3 and 4, those two verses of chapter 2, he speaks of that letter that he wrote to them with, with much sorrow of heart, with much tears. In that particular letter, he responds to agitators in the church who are stirring up opposition to him and the authority that Christ has vested in him as an apostle of the Lord. Evidently, there was one key person who led this opposition. And in that severe letter from what we know in 2 Corinthians as we will work our way through it, you'll see it. Paul tells the church at Corinth that they must deal decisively with this man and with his sin, just as Jesus Christ commands. The church had obeyed Paul's instructions. And now they're left with the question, what do we do next? What do we do now that we have taken these steps and the the man has responded with repentance? and humility. So Paul takes up that issue in this part of the letter that I just read. And in doing so, again, he's reminding us that Jesus Christ calls His church to deal decisively with sin and to do so with discipline and grace. Well, what do we see in our passage? In verse 5, we see this, that sin in the church always affects the whole church. Sin in a church affects the whole church look at that verse again verse 5 Paul says it like this now if anyone has caused pain he's caused it not to me but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you someone in the church had caused pain a member of the church had done something that resulted in real difficulty when Paul says if Anyone. He's not speaking hypothetically as if it may or may not be the case. Rather, he's speaking of something that in fact happened. We do this as well. We use language this way so that we might say, if it rained a lot last week, then we can expect our water tables to be full. And of course, it did rain, and so you can expect this. So when Paul uses this language, he's talking about something that did happen where a man acted in a way that was painful to him painful to the church. Probably he's referring to a man who directly opposed him and sought to undermine his credibility as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Some interpreters see this reference here in chapter 2 as going back to a man that Paul addressed and spoke about in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. There was an incestuous member of the church that the church was just letting go on as if nothing was wrong. And Paul says, no, you must deal with that man. And now they think, some interpreters think, that here Paul is referring back to that, saying, that man must be dealt with in this way. That may be the case, but I'm not convinced that is the case because of what Paul says about the personal nature of this particular sin, this particular man, and what he writes in chapter 7 about that specific event as well. Very likely, this is a man who opposed Paul publicly when Paul went on that quick, emergency, painful visit. And when he stood against Paul the rest of the church just sat by and let it happen and in doing so gave the implicit impression that they were in agreement with him or at least that they didn't disagree with him and so Paul's authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ was being undermined in the church you know it has been well said that the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And that's true not only in government, in political or social settings, it's also true in a church. And it accurately describes what happened in the Corinthian church. That's why Paul wrote that severe letter, that letter of rebuke. He's rebuking the church's passivity, and he calls them to take action against this sinful man who was creating this division in the congregation. It was painful. And it was pain that affected the whole church. Paul speaks very self-deferentially in the way that he even brings it up. He says, he's caused it not to me. He's not saying, "I, I didn't feel any pain. He's speaking relatively. He says, not only me would be a good way to translate that. He's not only caused me pain, but rather the whole church. Paul here had been personally pained by what this man did. But Paul realizes that there's something far more at stake here than his own personal pain. Because Paul is thinking about the church theologically. He says, to you all, the whole congregation has been pained, disrupted by what this man has done. He doesn't want to overstate it. That's why he says not to put it too severely. In other words, I don't want to say this in a way that you will miss all of the implications of it. But the significant point is what has happened has church-wide implications. What's Paul mean? Well, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul had written about the nature of a local church. There he calls... The local church, the body of Christ in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 12. Every church member of a local church is a member of that body. In verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 12, he says that if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. In other words, Paul's understanding of a local church is what happens to one member affects all of us. No one member can just go live by himself and think, what I do or don't do has no implications for the body. Not at all. The whole body is involved in what takes place and what one member may or may not do. When a church member then begins to undermine the authority of God's Word by what he says, by his attitude, or by his actions, he's not just injuring himself. In some sense, he's injuring the whole body. And if a member lives in such a way, or speaks in such a way, or acts in such a way as to cause other members of the church to doubt the authority or ministry of God's Word, then that member is threatening the welfare of the whole church. This is why Paul writes what he does in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. He's talking about a wayward church member who refuses to repent. Paul understood the theological importance of God's church. That's why he wrote that letter that was so severe, that landed so hard upon them. He caused them to deal decisively with this disruptive member. Now, if that sounds odd to you, if that sounds strange, foreign to you, it may well be because you have not taken the church As seriously as the Bible takes the church. And that's easy to do. Because sadly, in our cultural context today of modern American Christianity, the church is regarded as almost an afterthought, an add on, an option. American Christianity is so individualistic. It focuses on your personal relationship with Jesus without recognizing that the only way you can have a healthy relationship with Jesus is in the context of submitting to Jesus' lordship in a local church. Kent Hughes has captured very eloquently this huge gap between the contemporary way that so many who call themselves Christians think of the church and the way that the Bible speaks of the church. Listen to what Kent Hughes has written. For Paul, the church was central to Christian existence. He never conceived of Christians living apart from the visible church. He goes on and adds this. He would never have countenanced the free-riding ecclesiastical hitchhikers of today, much less the Mac Church consumers who attend one church for the preaching, send their children to a second church for the youth group, and participate in another church as small groups. People who live without commitment, without accountability, without discipline, without the Lord's table. Is it possible that you find yourself here this morning as an ecclesiastical hitchhiker? Maybe having fallen into the consumer mentality of looking at the church as optional? Pray that God will help All of us see this morning from his word, the place and priority of the church in the life of biblical Christianity. Consider Paul's point that he's making here in verse five, sin in the church affects the whole church, what one member does affects the body. That's why Christ calls upon the church to deal with sin, with discipline and with grace. But not only does sin in the church affect the whole body, the whole church, sin in the church must be dealt with properly. Properly. In verses 6-11, through we see Paul giving specific instructions. And in doing so, he outlines two basic responsibilities for dealing with sin in the church. Two basic things a church is to keep in mind in dealing with sin in the church. The first is to remove a recalcitrant sinner in the church. And the second is to restore a repentant sinner in the church. Let's look at the first one. Remove the unrepentant sinner. That's what the church evidently had done when Paul wrote them that severe letter. Look at verse 6. It says this punishment that has been inflicted upon this man. Punishment. That word punishment is a word that suggests formal congregational censure the church had acted and notice that it had acted paul says it had been carried out by the majority did you see that look at that again look at verse 6 again and just see the way that paul puts this this punishment by the majority is enough now what is a majority i mean if you remember your math classes right you might be tempted to say 51% but that's not quite right it's 50% plus 1 right All you need is 50% plus one. Now let me ask you this question. How do you determine a majority? Would it be possible for me to determine today if all the left-handed people in the room preferred pencils over fountain pens? Could I do that? I could, right? How would I do it? What would I have to know? I have to know how many left-handed people there are. Right, If there's going to be 50% plus 1, I've got to know what 100% is. When Paul uses this language, it's very precise language. It's not subject to, to any kind of other construction. The point that is the subtext, what he's taking for granted here, is that you have to know the total before you can speak in terms of a majority. This is a clear indication of two things. One, First, that discipline in the church is not a matter simply for the elders or the leadership. It is a matter for the whole congregation. But secondly, there must be a clearly defined number of members. Now this provides an argument for church membership. To know who's inside and who's outside. To know who the members are and who are not members. Without a clear Number of members, you cannot determine a majority. Now, Paul had undoubtedly instructed the church to remove this unrepentant church member, and evidently they'd done it. They'd done it just as Jesus said ought to be done in Matthew 18 let him be as a Gentile or a tax collector to you, in other words, an outsider. They'd done it just as Paul had previously written in 1 Corinthians chapter 5.13 when he says, Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of God. To churches. But be very careful to recognize exactly who is in focus here. Such action is always and only for recalcitrant sinners. That is, unrepentant sinners. Sinners, those who refuse to turn from their blatant, disruptive sin. The church always and will be, as long as it's on earth, filled with sinners. The only people who are candidates for the church are sinners. The only people who are members of this church are Sinners. A Christian is someone who has been saved from his sin so that sin no longer rules and reigns in his life, but a Christian is a person who nevertheless has sin remaining in his life. That's why John writes as he does in 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So, a Christian is a believer in Christ and a repenter of sin. And a church is made up of such people who are turning from sin, trusting Jesus. Repentance isn't a one-time thing that you do in order to enter the Christian life, just like faith is not a one-time thing you do to enter the Christian life. But rather, you continue to believe and you continue to repent. To know Christ savingly is to depend upon Christ every step of your life. And the only way you you depend upon Christ is By acknowledging sin, confessing it, and continuing to trust Him as the Savior of sinners. Brothers and sisters, don't you find that to be true in your life? I mean, isn't that the Christian life? It's a life of repentance and faith. Now, if that sounds odd to you, if you don't see it that way, I hope it's simply because you've never stopped to consider it. And not because you've been deceived in thinking that something you did back then makes you right with God today. I I did that. I repented. I believed. I did that. No. If you ever did that, you continue to do that. Because we live in repentance and faith. So don't get the wrong idea about church discipline. When the Bible speaks of removing someone from the membership of a church, it's not because that person is a sinner. If that were the case, you wouldn't have a pastor. It's because that person refuses to repent of sin. And if a person stops repenting or refuses to repent of a sin, he's no longer living like a true Christian. And for his own sake and the sake of the whole church, And the honor of Jesus Christ, he must be removed from the membership. So if a church is going to follow Jesus faithfully, then it must be willing to remove unrepentant, recalcitrant sinners from among them. But then secondly, it must also be willing to restore repentant sinners. Paul tells this church what to do with this man who had been removed And he's been overcome with his sorrow for his sin. And he wants to return. And he tells them what to do. He tells them how to do it. And he tells them why to do it. So what is the church to do now with this man who's been removed. And now is repentant. What are they to do? Well Paul says in verse 7. Forgive him. And comfort him. Do you see those two words? Forgive. Interestingly this is not the most common word for forgive. In the New Testament. It's a different word. It has at its very root the idea of grace. It means to grant favor. To freely, graciously cancel a debt. The church is to respond to this man now in his repentance as one who's turned off of the path he was on that was leading to destruction and is re-acknowledging, reconfirming his devotion to Jesus Christ as Lord and we acknowledge our forgiveness of Him for his sin. But then also comfort Which means to encourage or to come alongside Him to help Him along the way. Verse 8, Paul says, reaffirm your love for Him. Now it's not that the church ever stopped loving Him. In fact, when a church member goes into sin and refuses to repent, the most loving thing a church can do is to remove Him. It's loving Because it demonstrates the seriousness of the path that he's walking. And it provides God's way of bringing conviction so that there might be repentance and a return to the proper path. So when Paul says reaffirm your love, he's not suggesting that they quit loving him, but rather the decisive steps that they had taken to remove him from their membership because of his unwillingness to repent had cut that man off from the normal expressions of love and fellowship that exist in a church. He was no longer able to come to the Lord's table. He was no longer able to participate in the decisions of the church. He cut himself off from those privileges. And so Paul emphasizes to the church that now that this offender has repented, they need to respond to him with clear displays of forgiveness and comfort and love that's what they're to do how are they to do it how are they to do it whether to do it formally formally that word reaffirm means to ratify and it suggests a formal activity by the church a formal congregational act it's the formal restoration of the blessings and privileges of membership in the church they are to do this with apostolic authority and compassion listen to the way paul makes his appeal in verse 8. Do you see what he says? I beg you. I beg you. Now this admonition from Paul, it's not merely a suggestion. He's not merely saying, I think this would be a good idea. No, this is what you must do. But he pleads with them to do so. And so he's showing us his own compassion. In verse 10, he says, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. He's saying, as an apostle, I've forgiven him. As the one chiefly offended, the one who he aimed his attacks at, I've forgiven him. Now you follow my example, and by my authority, you forgive him too. And then notice what he says there at the end of verse 10. Do it in the presence of Christ. Remembering Christ. Taking to account Christ. Remembering our Lord's teachings on forgiveness which he weaves in in so many places in the Gospels. We see it even in the Lord's Prayer, right? Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, part of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Have you ever stopped to think what it is Jesus is teaching us to pray in that prayer? Have you ever prayed the Lord's Prayer? Do you really want God to forgive you? The way that you've forgiven others. What Jesus is doing is setting us up to. Be forced to confront. The need in our own lives to calculate. What God has forgiven us in Christ. That we might be empowered and motivated to forgive. What people have done against us. The Lord is determined to make sure we don't miss that point. About how forgiveness works. Because immediately after teaching the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, verse 14 and 15, listen to what he says. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Pastor Jared read earlier that parable of the unmerciful servant who had been forgiven millions of dollars. And then he goes and he finds the guy that owes him a few bucks. Throws him into prison. What's the point of this teaching? The point of this teaching is we need to stop and consider what we've been forgiven with our sins against God to see them in the right light and to recognize that nobody could ever sin against us no matter what they did to us that could begin to compare to what we have done against God if God has forgiven us, how can we not forgive others? Think about this for a moment, brothers and sisters. Are there people in your life that you're thinking, I'll never forgive? I'll never forgive because of the horrible things they've done? If, if you hold to that, you better hope you never sin. Because having received grace, we are called upon to to administer grace this grace of forgiveness there's no doubt that our Lord calls us to live in forgiveness but where do you find the strength to do that I mean, where do you find the grace and the power to forgive those who have offended you or those who have offended the church and been so painful in their actions the key again is to remember Christ to stop and think about Christ to forgive in the presence of Christ. This means that we forgive by His grace. We do it on the basis of what He has done for us. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, the apostle writes, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. You want to find strength and grace to forgive? Go to the cross. How has God forgiven you? What what did forgiveness cost to be provided for us? It cost the death of God's own Son. The cross stands as an eternal testimony, brothers and sisters, that our sin is so wicked, it is so heinous, it is so criminal, it took the death of God's own Son to pay for it. And as we meditate on that we see that that begins to work itself into our thinking and our affections what happens is that we begin to look at these horrible things people have done to us we realize they don't compare to what I've done to my Lord and he has forgiven me and at great cost and in what Jesus has done to secure my forgiveness there is power there's the energy there's the strength to enable me to forgive those who have sinned against me forgiven people forgive and forgiveness is at the very heart of all the blessings that we receive in Christ Ephesians 1:7 says in him Christ we have redemption by his blood the forgiveness of our sins the only place you can have your sins forgiven is in Jesus Christ that's it There's nowhere else to go. You can't make amends. You can't turn over a new leaf and think that that will bring forgiveness to you. In Him, we have redemption by His blood. That's Paul's shorthand way. By His blood to refer to the cross. He's reminding us that what happened on the cross was Jesus laying down His life to pay for sin. Because sin deserves the eternal wrath of God. And somebody has to pay for our sins. Somebody's going to pay for your sins. Either you're going to pay for them in eternity under God's wrath, or as you look to Jesus Christ, you can be sure that He has paid for them when He shed His blood on the cross. But that's the only way sins are forgiven. It's in Christ. So if you want your sins forgiven, what must you do? You must go to Christ. You must be in Christ. You've got to get in Christ. You can't have forgiveness by going to church. You can't have forgiveness by doing religious things. If you are going to have forgiveness, forgiveness is in Him. And you need to get in Him. How do you get in Him? You just humbly fall where you are. And trust Him. You just throw up the white flag and you say, Jesus, Lord, you come to Christ by faith because faith is the way that you get into Him. And when you come to Christ by faith, the redemption He accomplished by His blood on the cross gets applied to you. And at the heart of that redemption is forgiveness. And you can go to bed tonight on the authority of God's Word, pillowing your head in the confidence of knowing every last one of your sins has been forgiven but it's in christ so if you're not in christ come to christ children young people some of you have heard this all of your lives you give the right answers but do you realize that there is no forgiveness for your sins outside of christ come to christ believe christ bow to christ trust christ young adults Old people, maybe you think you're too far gone. In Christ, there's forgiveness. Come to Christ. You'll know the forgiveness of your sins, but you won't know it any other way. Brothers and sisters, we are to forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven us. The church is to be a fellowship of forgiveness. We are to be people who live in forgiveness. No one who is repenting of sin need ever fear of being turned away from the church. All who live in repentance and faith live in forgiveness with all who are following Christ. So Paul tells us not only what we are to do with the member who has been excommunicated, now repents, and how we are to do it, but he finally goes on to explain why we are to do this. Why is the church to do all of this? He gives two reasons. First, because when a sinner repents of sin and has been disciplined for that sin and now repents, Discipline has had its intended effect. You see what verse 6 says? The actions of the church by its majority expression is enough. Is enough. No longer need, no longer is there a need to continue treating this man, in the words of Jesus, as a Gentile and tax collector, an outsider. Discipline is never intended to overwhelm the one being disciplined. Verse 7 says that this man is in danger of being overwhelmed, swallowed up by excessive sorrow. And that's never the design of discipline. But praise God that this man was sorrowful. Praise God that he's sorry. Praise God that he's come to his senses to acknowledge that what's gone on in his life, what he's done is wrong and he's grieved over it. That is evidence of God's grace at work in this man's life. That's exactly why we carry out church discipline. It's why Jesus gives it so that the one who's become comfortable living in rebellion to God is brought to the end of himself and sees what he's forsaken and returns back. When a sinner repents, discipline has its intended effect listen again to the words of Kent Hughes on this he talks about this particular man in this particular passage he says this poor excluded man understood the mountainous doctrine of the church and he could not bear to live apart from the benefits and comforts of the body of Christ he feared for his own soul Hughes goes on how unlike some people I've encountered over the years who blithely brushed off church discipline and traveled a few miles to another church where they continued on without history and accountability and fear of God in pursuit of the ostensibly Christian life. So, you restore the repentant sinner because that's the reason we discipline. But secondly, you restore the repentant sinner so as not to give the devil a foothold. Look at verse 11. Do this so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. The devil has designs. The devil has goals. He has designs for this church. He has designs for you. If you're not a Christian, he has designs to keep you from becoming a Christian. If you're a Christian, he has designs to ensnare you, to lead you off of the pathway that Christ has prescribed for you. If if the devil can't prevent a church from carrying out biblical church discipline, then he will most certainly try to get a church to carry it out harshly and without grace. And if a church falls into those patterns of being unforgiving, unloving, then it ceases to reflect Jesus Christ, her Lord and head. So we are people who take God at His word and with humility and grace are willing to receive all who turn from sin and say, we are following Christ together with you in repentance and faith. John Dagg was a 19th century Baptist leader who became the first Baptist theologian in America to write a systematic theology. In his manual of church order, Dagg talks about the importance of the church as the New Testament expresses it. And the importance of this subject we're talking about today. Church discipline. And he includes this sentence. When discipline leaves a church. Christ goes with it. If that's true. It's a very sobering thought isn't it? If that's true. Then it says a church that refuses to do. What we've been called to do. In Exercising this kind of loving oversight of souls is in danger of having Christ vacate the premises. Yet think for just a moment. The church at Corinth was in danger of going down that path. Why do you think so many of the members in that church sat by Why this man stood up and undermined the authority of the Apostle Paul? Because to do anything else would have been hard. It would have been hard to address this man, to rebuke him, to call him to repent. They took the path of least resistance. They were passive. And that's a danger for churches today as well. It's a great temptation that churches face to not do what. Christ has called us to do in exercising discipline. And when you consider what Paul writes here in the passage we just looked at, and you go to Revelation 2 and see what Jesus says to two churches, the church at Pergamum and the church at Thyatira, who were tolerating blatant sinners in their church, teaching false things, and he threatens to unchurch them, then what John Dagg says makes perfect sense. When discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it Christ calls his church to deal with sin with discipline and in grace and Paul reminds the Corinthians of this by instructing them how to respond to the sinful member look at verse 9 he says for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything it's one thing to profess your submission the authority of God's Word it's something altogether different to live under the authority of that word and Paul would call churches of Jesus Christ by repentance of sin faith in Christ obedience to everything in the word to demonstrate that Christ really is the head of his church Brothers and sisters, carrying out loving, corrective discipline as the Bible teaches is the most difficult thing a church can do, which is why most churches today do not practice it. But if we're going to truly live under the authority of Christ and His Word, we must be willing to obey Him in everything, including this. Is this how you're willing to live? Maybe you're here today and you're a Christian. But you've had a very low view of the church. And you're not a member of a church. I hope you'll take seriously what this portion of God's Word says to you. If you're following Jesus, you need to be a member of a Bible-believing church. And I want to plead with you for the sake of Jesus in your own soul to seek out such a church and commit yourself with other brothers and sisters to walk together together. The way Paul says, you see, if you're not a member of a church, you cannot obey the admonitions in the passage we just studied. You can't do it. You can't do it because you're not part of the whole. Therefore, you couldn't be part of the majority. And you need to become a member of a church. Now, we'd love to talk to you about that, if that's what God's convicting you of today. But we're not the only church in this area that believes God's word. If it's not this church, there is a church where you need to anchor your life, to be under the authority of Christ, to live for Him so that you can become obedient in everything. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for giving us Your Word. We thank You for not holding back from us anything that is beneficial to us. We thank You for the church, Your wisdom in giving us the church. Forgive us for taking lightly that which You place importance upon. And I pray for brothers and sisters who have learned how to live apathetically toward the church. Lord, would your spirit take your word and speak today to such convict them, reassure them of your goodness, your wisdom, your love and work so that those apathetic ideas and thoughts might be turned away from and Christ might receive the glory and the honor that he is due in the church we pray in his name amen